I was 10 years old, standing on what some of you footballers here might consider to be hallowed ground, the grounds of Anfield Stadium, Liverpool. The year was 1984. And I was about to repeat the prayer of repentance after Billy Graham. Growing up over the years, I'd witnessed my alcoholic father's drunken behavior. But recently, there'd been a change in his attitude. So much so, in fact, that we'd all started going along to church in um, a town just down the road from us called Ossestry in Shropshire. Dad was a sergeant in the Royal Signals. And over the years, we'd had the opportunity to join him on his postings. Once, when we were in Cyprus, I was about four or five years old, and I was playing outside the pub that my dad was in. I managed to, uh, I was going through a concrete pipe, and I managed to misjudge the top of my head with the top of the concrete pipe. After steam stars for a moment, I staggered, and I felt something warm trickle at the back of my head. I put my hand there. I was bleeding. I decided to go back into the pub where my dad was. And I said, but dad, my head is bleeding. Dad was sitting down in front of a low table. And he said, well, I don't see anything. I took off my separate army baseball cap. And I placed it down on the low table. I remember the blood swilling around. He looked at the blood. He looked at me and said, right, lads, I've got to go. After finishing his pint, we got in the car. Now here I was, 10 years old, with my eyes firmly shut and Dad standing opposite me on the football ground with a big beaming smile. I repeated the prayer after Billy Graham and gave my heart to the Lord. As a young child, I saw how Jesus had changed my father's heart. And I too recognized that I also needed to change my heart. I wanted that same peace that dad now possessed that could only come through a changed heart. Now, not all of us have a Damascus Road experience that is dramatic as Paul's testimony. But we all, each of us, have a testimony. Each one of us has a story to share as to how Jesus has saved us from a life of slavery to sin. To a new life, free from the power of sin. We're not changed to perfection, but in Christ we are redeemed and we have the promise of eternal life in God. So let's examine Paul's testimony, his defense the crowd in Jerusalem, to counter the lies and accusations that have been shouted against him. First, a recap on last week to kind of add some context where we are in this story. Last week we saw that Paul, in his attempt to win his function, uh, fellow countrymen to Christ, he took a Nazareth vow and shaved his head and underwent the ritual purification. Now he was almost at the end of this ritual purification when he went into the temple. But he was seen some, by some of the Jews from Asia and thinking that he was with the gentle Trophimus, 
in the Holy Temple, the Jews caused a riot. So picture the scene now. Paul has been severely beaten up. And if it wasn't for the intervention of the Roman soldiers, Paul could actually have been killed. Our New Testament would have been smaller and without a lot less, a lot, uh, less wisdom and teaching if in this instance. But in God's grace, God preserved him and he was saved. And we pick up the story with this mob outside the Roman Fort Antonia, which overlooked the temple area. Brain for Paul to be killed. So with the sound of the mob outside the fort's wall, Paul is being led into the barracks when he asks the Roman tribune in Greek if he can speak to him. The Roman tribune is actually surprised at this point that Paul can actually speak Greek because he just assumed that Paul was a common criminal. Which is why he said to them, aren't you the Egyptian who started the revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Now, did Paul look Egyptian? He would have certainly been naturally olive-skinned, and quite possibly from his time on the boat, he would have gone a lot darker in his skin color. Hence, the Roman tribune's faulty assumption, or perhaps it was just what the people in the crowd were shouting, that he was the Egyptian terrorist. However, let's just pause for a moment because personally, I think this would be the first thing that I would ask. The Roman soldiers had just had to support Paul up the steps to the Roman fort because he had no strength because of the severe beating that he'd received. And now Paul has the presence of mind to ask if he can speak to the very people that just been beating him up. Wouldn't this just been a good time to just call, call out a timeout and just go to the cell? Quite happy. I'm, I'm done with that mob. But Paul was like no other man. No, he wasn't superhuman. He wasn't really different, any different from you or me, apart from possible character traits, which is uncommon. Paul was zealous for the gospel. And for reaching the lost. He saw every opportunity as an opportunity for witnessing, good or bad. Those Jews in the temple area were spreading false accusations about him and the reason for why he was there. So Paul, despite the physical pain he was in from the beating, wanted to speak to the noisy crowd. And he didn't worry about what to say because he remembered Jesus' words from Matthew 10. Jesus said, on my account, you'll be brought before the governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. No doubt Paul would have prayed a quick prayer before he addressed the crowd, asking for the Holy Spirit's help. I do this when I'm talking to my work colleagues. When I'm sharing my faith, I pray something along the lines of, please, Lord, give me the words to say now. I may not be facing the authorities, but my, but like Paul, my testimony is 
under scrutiny. And I need God's help to know what to say. So the Roman Tribune gives Paul permission to speak to the crowd because he was a Jew from the Roman city of Tarsus. And he was educated by the very virtue of the fact that he could speak Greek. Paul, now standing on the steps of the fort, faces the crowd below. He motions the crowd that he is going to speak to them. And he addresses the crowd, not in Greek, the tongue of the Roman occupation. But he addresses them in Hebrew. Or Aramaic, as it is in the NIV. Because he addresses them in their own tongue, this seems to quieten the crowd even further. Then Paul gives his testimony, or his defense, which should be divided up into three parts. Number one, his early conduct, his conversion, and then his calling. Now the word defense is actually from the Greek word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. Paul, though, wasn't about to apologize for his actions. No, he was going to defend his actions. So Paul's early conduct in verses 3 to 5. Now verses 3 to 5 basically outlines Paul's Jewish credentials. He starts off with the fact that he was a Jew born in the Roman city of Tarsus, which was the capital city of the province of Cilicia. But he was actually brought up in Jerusalem. He studied Jewish law under Gamaliel, who was one of the top rabbis of the day. There would have been people in the crowd who would have known of Gamaliel and would have known of Paul as well. At this point, the crowd must have been transfixed. But Paul then says something quite remarkable. He says to them, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He's effectively saying to them, to those people who are just trying to kill him, good job, I would have done exactly the same in my day. Which is crazy, really. But anyway, we continue. However, being zealous for God, in other words, doing good works for God, will not get you to heaven. We are not saved by works, Saved for works. As Paul himself says later in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. No one can boast that they have pleased God by doing enough in order to get to heaven. Paul goes on further to prove his Jewish credentials by recalling the fact that he killed Christians. He wasn't just content in arresting them and throwing them into prison. He says that he persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Paul was a bad man. But he did all this in the name of God. And he thought that he was serving God by killing Christians. Or followers of the way. As far as he was concerned, there were heretics. And they were deserving of death for their heresy. Jesus, of course, warned his disciples that this was going to happen in John 16. 
verse 2. But they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you think they are offering service to God. Of course, this is exactly what Islamic terrorists are doing and have done in many parts of the world. They think that they are serving their God, Allah, by killing Christians and Jews. We live in a country that doesn't physically threaten us for our faith. But Christians who live in China, India, Iran, Iraq, Sri Lanka, understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. They wake up and every day could be their last. I saw an article in the Christian Post. It says, just minutes after expressing their willingness to die for Christ, half the children from one Sunday school class at Zion Church were reportedly killed in the Easter Sunday suicide bomb attacks in Sri Lanka. Today was an Easter Sunday school and at the church, and we asked the children, how many of you are willing to die for Christ? Everyone raised their hands. Caroline, a Sunday school teacher in the, at the church, said. Minutes later, they came down to the main service, and the blast happened. Half of the children died on the spot. Are we willing to put our hands up with childlike faith and say that we're prepared to die for Christ? Paul is admitting that he was this kind of person that killed Christians. And this must have pleased the crowd. Paul then gives the next part of this remarkable testimony, his conversion. Paul's conversion experience is recorded in Acts chapter 9 by Luke. But now Paul is giving the crowd a first-hand account of what happened in verses 6 to 16. Firstly, Paul says that the light shone around him, which was in fact brighter than the midday sun, when the sun, of course, is at its peak. It's no wonder then that Paul was blinded, but only he was blinded. This was a focused beam of light directly on Paul. And if this doesn't get attention, Jesus himself spoke directly to Paul. Notice, though, what Jesus says here to Paul in verse 7. Why do you persecute me? Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Or why are you persecuting the ones that I love? No, Jesus asked why Paul was persecuting him. Why? Well, it's because we are the body of Christ. As Paul says, himself in 1 Corinthians now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it this is why we pray for those Christians who are persecuted in other countries when one part of the body is hurt the whole body feels it an attack on Christians in China or Sri Lanka is an attack on us we must stand with the persecuted church And pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We also pray for those that hurt us and persecute us. So that they may come to repentance in Christ. What better way to make your enemy your friend than to see him come to know the Lord. 
So with the light blinding him, Paul, in his confusion, asks, What shall I do, Lord? It's this moment that Paul recognizes that what he's been doing is wrong. And he recognizes his need for repentance. Paul was literally illuminated by the word of God. And Paul saw, for the first time in his life, despite being blind, his need for repentance. Jesus then instructs him on what to do next. Paul goes to Damascus and his sight is healed by God through Ananias. And the text says, a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Notice here how Paul continues to try and win over the crowd by making repeated references to the law. But quietly omitting the fact that Ananias was actually a follower of Christ as well. It wouldn't have served any, any of the purposes. Of course, he'd if he'd mentioned that, the crowd would have rioted again. And he would not have had the chance to tell the crowd how he came to faith in Jesus. And Ananias next says to Paul, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to, and to see the righteous one. Paul is subtly linking the Old Testament revelation of God, the God of our ancestors, with the New Testament revelation of God through Jesus, the righteous one. Paul is then told how to turn in repentance to God. He thought that he was saved by who he was, an ethnic devout Jew, and by what he was doing for God, but actually it meant nothing. Not to God. And Ananias told him, get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. It's only by calling on the name of the Lord that our sins are washed away. As Paul himself said in Romans 10, 9, 9 and 10, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith. And are saved. Just this last week in the news, there was a very real demonstration of being saved by calling on the name of the Lord. Not in a spiritual sense, but in a phys physical sense. Two teenagers, both 17 years old, had decided to bonk off high school. They'd been friends since fourth grade. They decided to swim offshore in Valino Beach, America became stranded two miles off the shoreline when they realized that they didn't have the strength to go back. They're out there for two hours in the water. Tyler Smith says, I cried out, if you really have a plan for us, like, come on, just bring something. Then a sailing boat from South Florida to New Jersey spotted the teens in distress. I started swimming towards it. I was like, I'm going to get this boat. Just stay here. I'm going to get this boat. We're going to live. Heather Brown said, their prayers were answered in the form of a boat, a godsend. The name of the boat, the Amen. Amazing. The first words that came out of my mouth were, God is real. The men in the boats brought the teens to shore. The teens were thanking God and the men who saved them. Tyler Smith says, there's no other reason, no other explanation in the world other than God. That's amazing. I love that story. 
and praise God that they recognized that God in that situation was their salvation physically. And I pray that they recognize that they need God in a spiritual sense as well as the true salvation. Paul confessed, repented, calling on the name of the Lord and was baptized as a physical sign of his conversion. From Paul's conversion, we next see how he was called into God's service in 17 to 21. Paul actually spent some time in Damascus. And in Galatians, he tells us he actually spent three years in Arabia before returning to Jerusalem. So there must have been some passage of time before, from his conversion to his return to Jerusalem. Once back in Jerusalem, Jesus himself appears to Paul in a vision, warning him to flee immediately because the Jews, known of Paul's conversion, wanted to kill him. Now instead of thinking of for his own safety, Paul actually argues with the Lord, making the point that since he was the very person who persecuted Christians and arrested them and killed the very first martyr, Stephen, that he should be allowed to witness to the Jews. Paul perhaps hoped in some kind of way to try and make an amends for all the terrible hurt and damage that he had actually done. But Jesus' warning here now turns into a command. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It's this word Gentiles that sends the crowd absolutely apoplectic. The very reason why they were rioting and trying to kill Paul in the first place was because they thought that Paul was with a Gentile in the temple area. So for Paul to say the word Gentiles again was just too much for them to bear. Paul was called to go to the Gentiles, but in every city that he went to, first of all, he went to the synagogue to preach the message of salvation to his fellow Jews. This is why he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then to the Gentile. The gospel is for everyone. And Paul so desired to see the Jews, his fellow countrymen and women, come to the saving knowledge. At this point, however, the Roman Tribune has to stop Paul's testimony. Because the crowd again are shouting for Paul to be killed. The Roman Tribune didn't fully understand what Paul had been speaking about. So he orders Paul to be taken to the barracks to be flogged and interrogated. However, as Paul has been stretched out, Paul plays his trump card and questions the legality of their actions because Paul was a Roman citizen. And under Roman law, you couldn't be flogged without a trial. And we'll come on to that in future weeks. This demonstrates it's absolutely proper to seek protection and justice within our own legal system. Those Christians Prosecuted under the law have every right to seek legal, legal representation to defend their position. But regardless, we do not put our faith in the legal system. We put our faith in God. Even if we do not get justice from our own legal system, we will get justice from God. So in conclusion, what can we say of this passage? 
What was the overall message of the text? Well, firstly, for us, we all have a defense or a testimony to share, which, like Paul, speaks of our old life, our conversion, and our calling. God's word changes lives, and we can share our testimony, our story, with those around us who don't know that same freedom from sin that we have. It was because I made a commitment when I was 10 years old that God changed my heart. I now, I now have a testimony. 1 Peter 15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Secondly, Paul experienced many trials and tribulations, but he had peace in God. And because of this, he was fearless and took every opportunity to share the gospel of peace. I have, and I still am, going through trials, especially with my wife having ME. She's not here this morning because she's wiped out. But it's the peace of God that sustains me. Jesus said in John 16:33, I have told you these things so that you may have peace in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Real peace is not the absence of trouble, but rather the knowledge that God holds you through every circumstance. Jesus has the victory over this world. And he's coming again, soon victorious to take us home to be with him. And finally, we must stand with our brothers and sisters who have been persecuted around the world. And especially for those who have no legal representation. Let us continue in prayer for those Christians who are suffering for their faith. If you don't know the Lord and you want to know more. Or if anything about this sermon has affected you. Then please come and speak to me after the service or one of the prayer ministry team. Thank you.